Hello and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. This is Shyam Khanna, and today we are very fortunate to host Rachna Elawat, co-founder and EVP at OnDot. OnDot provides digital solutions for over 4,000 banks and credit unions, allowing cardholders to manage their cards with their phones. Thanks so much for joining us. Really happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. Could you please tell us a little bit more about OnDot and the story behind how it was founded? Shyam, OnDot... We started OnDot almost 10 years ago, coming up to our 10th year anniversary. But it was designed from day one with consumers in mind. When we started OnDot, we were not even from the payment industry. We were coming from, like my background was mainly in networking, enterprise networking, uh, network, enterprise networking consulting. And the notion of creating something for the payment industry or financial industry really started from personal experience. So while we designed and thought about our products with consumers in mind, we decided to distribute our product as a white-label solution through banks and credit unions, as you just mentioned, because those are the ones that you and people tend to have a relation with. We compromised on not having a direct brand presence with consumers, but while ensuring that millions of people just like you and I are using our products every day. So two points here. Everything that we do on the product and delivery is for consumers. How it gets made available in the market is through our processor or bank card issuers relationships. So we had to develop both products and relationship at the same time. And it was really at the time you know, if you recall, after the 2008 financial downturn, and some even call it, you know, financial crash, banks and investment side, they came under major scrutiny. And they were investing a whole lot in consumer-based technologies. But fraudsters on the other side, fraud that was happening at the retailers with the payment cards, that was on the rise. So it was the consumers who were caught in the middle. So we thought of all our products as consumers. First, let's figure out, can we give a better experience to user if their identity is compromised? If there's a fraud on the card, even if I wasn't liable for the misuse, if I reported on time, it was still a breach. And FinTech as an industry was really just taking off. And 2010, 2011 timeframe, FinTech as a term became known, banks and credit unions, they had not invested a whole lot in their own digital products till then. So we just got lucky, not knowing which way it would go. But I think we were fortunate that we were born at the right time. And we were able to bring in the learnings from other industries in networking and wireless and mobile into financial and really create a product which we believed was differentiated. And that's really how we got the market traction with our business relations and continued to grow. Now we're almost 10 years old. As you mentioned, about 4,000 banks and credit unions, millions of consumers are using our product. But we work with banks to make the products available to consumers. Got it. And a lot of listeners on our podcast are actually, you know, very interested in entrepreneurship, whether they're undergrads, whether they're at a grad school level. And, of course, the landscape nowadays is very different than it was in 2010. I think fintech has come a long way, is a much more familiar term. Uh, what advice would you have for any budding entrepreneur today? I can share my experience, and maybe the learnings will come out from there. Because as we think about a company, we shouldn't just think about it as a product or an idea. It actually takes 
people, process, and productization of the idea to make a viable operation. So when we first started, we created a prototype first based on our idea, and we ran that by about a little over 35, 36 different contacts that were introduced to us through, you know, friends, some people we had known in the investment community for a while. And that was just really to figure out whether it was worth, you know, leaving our jobs in a different industry and thinking about starting something in a totally unknown space. This wasn't an area where we had established customer base, where we could have gone and sold a product from another new company that we were starting. This was really a new area for us and had to start from scratch. About, I would say about 50% or so said, yes, this has legs, worth quitting what you're doing. And most of us were in our late 30s and early 40s. So it wasn't something that we were starting as a company coming out of college. But hopefully your listeners will be able to relate to it, that it was still a new concept or a new idea and new industry for us. So about 50% of those said, you know, this is worth quitting your job. Yes, go for it. And given the energy in the Silicon Valley area, that the startup seemed like the right time. There were quite a few who said, no, don't even think about it because this area is all about sales and marketing and technology really hasn't started getting utilized to the level that you guys think in the networking and other words, and it'll be a long road. It has been a long road. But, you know, just combining your intuition, personal experiences, learnings from the previous companies, and applying it to a product idea to make it into a viable operation, understanding the people both internally and externally who we need to bring on our team, understanding the processes because when a financial institution adopts a product, they go through a lot more scrutiny given the regulations in place, how they think about the customer processes. Sometimes they're also a little more conservative than enterprise networking understanding, appreciating these differences, understanding that our product will actually go live with some of the legacy technologies that in the payment industries have existed for, you know, over 30, 40 years, and then applying that with the product ideas that we had. I think that's really what helped us grow the business from just a few slides or an idea or a simple proof of concept to something that can be put in the hands of millions of users. And so touching upon the last point around regulation, do you believe that recent regulations, so regulation between 2010 and now, has raised or lowered the barriers for entry to credit card products? Because you see so many different co-branded cards, you know, you see different companies coming out with new cards. How do you think that regulations impacted the industry? Yeah, and let me broaden this up with more as a worldwide regulations impact. So, you know, U.S. is one area where you have large, one country where you have large number of financial institutions. So there are roughly about 10, 12,000 banks, credit unions, and about nine or 10 processors. And then regulations, just like when we were getting started with Durban Amendment, and then later on with Visa MasterCard coming out with their alerts, notifications that needed to be delivered to the cardholders. So it's not just one entity that's coming up with regulations. There are government regulations. There are also industry mandates by scheme, but the number of financial institutions are large. If you look at what's really happening in Europe, specifically with UK and many other countries with the Open Banking Initiative, they're talking about empowering consumers more. If you look at Australia, I think that's one market that's way ahead of many other you know, geographies. 
if you look at Southeast Asia, they've done a good job of combining both retailers and the issuer side. Now, if you broaden and talk about regulations and what's really happening with the banks and, you know, credit unions and some areas there are also called building societies, it's all about consumers. So I would not say that regulations have lowered or raised the barriers. If the products are designed with empowering consumers, then actually it helps with the barriers that are being put in place. See, in the late 2000, and it continues to happen even now, every now and then you hear about another big breach, and fraudsters are always ahead of coming up with different new ways, and, you know, they like to, you know, get their hands on people's money. But people feel frustrated whenever there's a compromise. So we started with empowering consumers, giving them controls over their card, purchase, and notifications, then the mandates that were issued by the schemes helped us because financial institutions had to have a way that every cardholder should be able to receive notification on their card. And our product had already been integrated in the processors, so it had it. Now, something like a card switch, you know, now seems like, oh, everybody must have it. When we started or pioneered the concept, it didn't exist. Mobile banking at that point was, you know, limited to more SMS or text for just very important conversations or important FII kind of details, but now it's being used for two-way interactions. So it's not just being used for me to turn my card on and off or set my preferences or be notified. It's also being used for me to set up all kind of self-service journeys. If my card is lost or replaced, if I'm traveling, I no longer have to inform my bank where I'm going, but through my mobile application and location features, my bank already knows that, you know, I'm in Singapore or I'm in Italy, so my card needs to be kept active around me. So all of these things have helped build products that are consumer-focused, also reduce the fraud, and improve the operational efficiency. So now all of this had to be done while respecting the regulations and also in some cases taking advantage of the opening up of, like, open banking and others. So we always have to keep track of what's happening in the regulatory world. We also have to respect the legacy systems the banks, credit unions, and card issuers have in place. We also have to study what the tech giants are using so the consumers don't gravitate towards an offering from the newcomers but continue to stay loyal to their existing card issuers. And over time, we found that, you know, as you empower users and the connection between the bank or the card issuer and the consumer increases. The consumer comes back to the same issuer to buy more and they trust them more. Makes sense. And more to that point, you know, you mentioned about, you know, tech giants and traditional big financial institutions. What role can fintechs like yours play in helping smaller banks and credit unions stay competitive with much bigger rivals and with big tech? We play a very significant role because we help banks leapfrog. See, technology is available, and it's the same technology available to us and banks and tech giants, right? The way you use the technology to create a user experience that keeps them engaged is where the differentiation is. So let me give you a couple of examples. Now, with Apple Card announcement earlier this year, basically, it points to a very basic thing that every card needs an app. Till now, 
the focus had been on mobile apps, mobile banking apps, which was exposing sort of same features that were available to you on online banking, which you've been using for 10, 20 years, which was same as what was available to you if you walked in into a branch. But a card is a very different payment instrument than just transferring money from your checking account to your saving or, you know, issuing a check to somebody or scheduling a wire transfer. Card has become more in, more front and center in everyday life and in that brand association. So Apple's announcement was pretty significant, not just because there's a tech giant getting into the industry and issuing their cards. Co-branded cards and retailer cards have existed forever. The reason it's so important is because this is the first time a tech giant has created a card-only app with everything that you need on card end-to-end management. Now, if you look at the announcement by recent announcement by Venmo getting in the credit card space, if you look at Google announcements, it basically points to an area that banks today have focused but not made it like the central piece of their card. Their focus has still been more on the mobile banking application, and card happens to be one thing that you could look at, or you could look at your recent transactions. Giving consumers an ability to be notified every time their card is used, being able to set budgets, being able to see on a monthly basis or a daily basis where money is going, all of that has allowed now financial institutions to, you know, use card to drive their revenue as much as the saving and checking and all the other accounts. Now, the role that FinTech can play here is, while banks are still today are focused on running their businesses, and there are a lot of systems that one must keep in mind before a new technology needs to be developed. While they're spending a lot of money, but they can have a ready-made solution be available that can still be customized and offered under their brand and offered to consumers and in a relatively short time period is what FinTech like ours bring to the table. And more and more financial institutions also have now their own investment arms that they want to work with FinTech, not because they want to change their roadmap and influence their own design, but I believe they are also in it together as we march towards creating solutions that take advantage of technology, but really create with consumers in mind to give them more control. I use an example of travel before. But there are so many others. As an example, if my car transaction is getting denied because I've not signed up for overdraft, now overdraft as a service has existed forever. But the bridge that was needed between me, my transaction getting denied, to me getting approved of overdraft required me to remember that and then either go to a branch or at a later point think about signing up for it. Otherwise, my transaction is getting denied. To your question, this was a regulation uh, really that was put in place so that the consumers don't end up paying a lot on overdraft fees every time they run out of funds in their checking, but money was available to them in their other accounts, it's just that they hadn't transferred it. Now, how do you bring the regulation and a technology together? In this case, what we do as a company, and this is a product that banks have been offering for a long time, is every time my transaction is getting denied because there's insufficient funds, then, and if I'm eligible for overdraft protection, then an offer to sign up for overdraft protection is shown to me right away as a part of the notification. I can, I'll still go through the terms and conditions, provide my digital consent, 
and I present my card again and let that transaction through. As a user, I don't have to put this on my to-do list to go and take care of it at a later time or suffer the embarrassment of my transaction getting denied while I still had enough months funds available in that bank or issue. Makes sense. I actually stopped by OnDot's booth at Money 2020, and my biggest takeaway was the transaction data enrichment feature. I, I just found that very interesting. Uh, could you tell our users or listeners, rather, a little bit more about it? Oh, yeah, sure. By the way, thank you very much for stopping by. It was a good show, and uh, I missed meeting you there, but here we are. Let me tell you a little bit more about that product. So today, we offer product all the way from somebody being able to apply for a card from the mobile card getting pushed to their wallet. So if it's Apple or you know Google with MasterCard and Visa, you can also have the card immediately provisioned into the phone. You can control those cards. And if it's a dependent card, you can set a different preference than your own. You can set your budget. You'll be notified for your different transactions as your card is used separately for recurring card on file and your everyday purchase. But the one that we're really proud of is what you just brought up. See, what we there is no there's no standardization on merchant terminals. So today you'd find that two terminals from the same merchant may be coded differently for the name, address, location to be sent in the transaction ISO 8583 stream as the transactions are authorized. So, and that causes a lot of confusion. Depending on who configured the terminal, it may have some information correct, but not all of it. And how does it impact users? Is because that many times that same information is used for you to see your transactions on a statement. So you get confused as a consumer because you may not recognize a transaction, And banks suffer a lot, card issuers suffer a lot, because as a user, when you don't identify or you can't recognize a transaction, you might end up disputing it. And there is a regulation in place that within X number of days, if your case cannot be investigated, that whether it was you who made a transaction or you're just reporting a fraud, that the bank has to make sure that you're not liable. And they end up writing off that cost because it takes them longer to investigate. So there's a huge problem in the industry which starts off with something as simple as merchant data not being correct as the transaction authorization requests are coming in. Many times, because that data is not correct, even a legitimate transaction is denied because of some other rules that may kick in to not approve such a transaction, right? So this is a problem for consumers. This is also a problem for issuers. Now, what have we done as a company? Our products are already integrated in the authorization. That's how we have integrated our product with over nine processors and with every bank. Everything that we do is real-time. So as your preferences need to be applied, your card is getting approved for a certain type of transactions in real-time. During the authorization, between the time that's typically point-of-sale is configured between 9 to 15 seconds, that from the time you swipe your card or put a chip or tap or pay, whatever method you may use, to the time that the terminal receives the response back, good to go or decline, we are one such service that's getting invoked right there. So what we do here is we know the user context, we know the terminal, and by using a technology partnership with other vendors and suppliers, we've been able to combine all of this. So we look at the transaction authorization request. We also have several different databases on merchants that we use, 
and we enrich that transaction with the right details so that when you go and look at your statement or you're alerted of a transaction, you just don't see hash 2648 charge me $48. You actually see the name of the merchant with the address and you open up the application. You have a better visual recall because you can see even the location or a street view for that merchant. While you can also see what was the original information just in case any some other in, data transaction details still includes the original. But as a user, now you see very clean, clear, and accurate information on your statement. So you're likely to less, I mean, not dispute your transactions as much. You're able to better classify those transactions to really know where you're spending money. At the same time, the card issuer is able to serve you better, and card issuer also has to, their cost of handling the dispute and many other things comes down significantly. It's a huge cost for issuers as well as the consumers, and we've been able to you know, come up with a solution by sitting in between people, data, and these transaction processing to enrich the details that you have. And now we have plans to expand that even more. You know, consumer technology has evolved significantly, and merchant data is available and used for a variety of other services, not just transaction approval. Your Yelp rating, your Google Maps, your rewards, all of that existed outside of the payment transaction authorization. We've combined that along with merchant to bring the clarity and accuracy, extending that customer experience with other products and services down the line. Moving on to the broader fintech sector, what's one trend that you've seen, or maybe even one factor within fintech, that might not be getting as much attention as it should, and you think could be really promising in the next few years? I think a lot of what we are seeing right now has existed in some form or the other before. But it's going through a transformation with almost like a 2.0 of something. As an example, rewards and offers. They've existed in different forms for as long as the cards have existed because card issuers have always liked to incentivize the people for using a card. Right? We all sign up for various cards credit card especially, if there is some sort of a reward attached to it so that my good behavior can be rewarded. But the use of those rewards and offers or their redemption has so far not been as effective because most of these systems were not real-time and they were not taking advantage of sometimes user location. Now you have a real powerful instrument to which you are communicating with your issuer which is your mobile phone. If I know where you are and I know what kind of things you're interested in, without getting creepy, if I'm able to tell you that this might be of interest to you, you're more likely to walk into a store or take advantage of that reward and be instantly have that instant gratification because you used a payment instrument from your bank. So there's a lot of focus that's happening here. But it cannot happen in isolation, like how it was conceived earlier, that either in your statement, you get to see where you can go next and shop, because there's a pretty good chance that when you're seeing it a few days later, you're not likely to go back to that place. Or if, let's say, you're paying for, you know, you're at a restaurant right now, and you pay whatever, $60, $70, and before the receipt, before you get to sign the uh, check, if you're given an offer to buy a dessert at 50% or, you know, have one on us kind of a thing, you're more likely to take advantage of that. So we have to combine the user context and location with the offer systems that have already existed. 
for a long time. I'm seeing a lot of activity here. There's also a lot of activity in sort of an alternate loan systems. So converting your existing payment into an increment to pay, so sort of extending the life of your credit or increasing, temporarily increasing the balance on your card just because this happens to be Christmas season and you're likely to spend more money in December versus, you know, the rest or October than rest of the year. So there's also a lot of activity happening in alternate payment system. But here's my take. While there are products being created for consumers uh, to take advantage of the payment instruments in some other form, I think the win-win for both fintech and the card issuers, banks, credit unions processes is in ensuring that the existing systems, the back-end system of records, can still be utilized while giving a user better experience or service which takes advantage of mobile and other technologies. So if you're able to creatively bridge the two, that it's a win-win and banks can partner very effectively with FinTech. When we try to come up with an, with an approach that sort of challenges the status quo, we lose for two reasons. One is because consumers don't have a relation with any other new entity, and the new entity has to focus a lot more in the sales and marketing dollars to build that relation. Unless you're able to offer something so unique that hasn't existed and create that one consumer-focused product which can go viral without spending a lot on marketing and sales and focusing on product, that's a win-win for a fintech. But for most other technologies, if we can respect what already exists and help create that bridge so that while you are successful as a fintech, but you partner very effectively with the banks because banks is who the consumers still trust with their money. That makes complete sense and actually resonates a lot. I think particularly in the U.S. where I think consumers may actually be quite loyal to the existing banks and you know, uh, may not have the same problems that folks in developing markets might have with their current level of service from the financial sector. So just wrapping up, what are you most looking forward to in 2020? Scale. As a company, yeah. we are at a stage where we are scaling rapidly. So sometimes doing more of the same, but doing it at a scale so that we are successful as a company and are able to offer more product. There's nothing more rewarding than that. While there's a lot of innovation happening, you want most of this to see the light of the day, right? And that happens while you continue to build that relationship with your customers. At the same time, you're able to scale the operations process and people that you bring in so that we win on both sides. The other thing that I'm also seeing is, you know, there is a lot of talk about how different fintech books or blogs and things like that that are coming out that one can listen to and figure out what's the next big thing. But everything has to be centered around consumer and everything has to be standard, has to be centered around people, process, and productization of an idea. So to me, the biggest thing that happens at this stage of the company is not necessarily picking up 10 new things to do, but to really do the things that we do well while we scale up the operations and help our customers get more customers in this marketplace. Thanks so much for sharing all your time with us. Hope you had a good podcast and, you know, hope to hear from you in the future. Very much enjoyed it. Uh, let's continue the dialogue. I look forward to 
you know, what comes out, but at the same time also, you know, engaging with you in future as we build a story. Sounds good. Thank you.